प्रभु जी को ले So last week I used the illustration of Randy Johnson and his pit, where his fastball has to hit the bird flying by, and he hit the bird. But it's just an incredible amount of calculations that have to happen. So basically, that's what God does all the time when He's sovereign. But we're going to still see some more of that. But there's one thing we're also going to see, and it reminded me of. The term blitzkrieg. We're going to see a, a blitzkrieg on chariots this evening. What is a blitzkrieg? Well, I think we know it, it means lightning war, lightning speedy and fast. It's an intense military campaign intended to bring about a swift victory. So, if you ever watch any kind of documentary on War there in Germany um, and World War II. Um, any documentary on it or any film on it, you, you inevitably hear about Blitzkrieg. Um, that's where I learned about it in documentaries, and they, I mean, they show exactly what a Blitzkrieg is. It's this idea of just a bombardment, speedy bombardment, bombardment, secret bombardment, catcher, capturing the enemy unawares. And you learn about that. Well, the term had appeared in 1935 in the German military periodical Deutschwehr, meaning German defense. Now, this was in connection to the quick or lightning warfare. German maneuver operations were successful in the campaigns of 1939 to 1941. And by 1940, the term was extensively used in Western media. Blitzkrieg operations capitalized on surprise penetrations, general enemy unreadiness, and their ability to match the pace of the German attack. So we're going to see a little bit of that. Now this isn't the focal point of what we're going to see tonight, but we are going to see a Blitzkrieg, and it's going to be the Blitzkrieg of Jehu, who has been called by God to strike the house of Ahab, and he will, in regard to Joram, and also Ahaziah is going to be in there. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. 2 Kings chapter 9, 14 through 29. And I've entitled it Judgment on Joram and Ahaziah. Now the first part of this is going to be Jehu strikes the house of Ahab. And that would be against Joram. Secondly, we're going to see Jehu strikes Ahaziah. So he's going to get him, even though Ahaziah is of the southern kingdom. But he happened to be in well, it depends on whose point of view you're looking at it from, but God's point of view, he happened to be in the right place at the right time, and God would bring his judgment against him. Well, before we begin to look at the scriptures, let's just go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you this evening to direct our minds and hearts on your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit, as always, would be the teacher. And we pray that also the Holy Spirit will allow these things to penetrate our hearts, that we are knowledgeable, wise, and submissive to the Word of God, even applying these things to our lives. Father, we ask you to guard and guide my lips that I preach no error or presume to be something, but Father, I would preach the Word in such a way that the Holy Spirit uses the sword of the Spirit, His sword, on our hearts. And Father, we'll just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a little bit of a recap. Uh, because these two
to stories as narratives. And when I say story, I mean a real thing or a story. It's a narrative. And it is, by the way, uh, written in the literary form. That's the great thing about gospel. So there are two uh, pieces going together. What happened with Joram and Ahaziah and Jezreel. And then all of a sudden, Jehu becomes the king appointed by Elisha in direct order of the Lord. And his command was to strike the house of Ahab, i.e. Joram. Now, if you remember, uh, verses 1 through 3, it said that Joram went up against Haziel, the Assyrian king, at Ramoth Gilead. And he went up there to fight them, to keep them at bay. And remember, Haziel was the one who indeed uh, killed Ben-Hadad and smothered him, and he became king then. Well, we also know that Joram asked the southern kingdom, Ahaziah, to join him, which is a no-no. We saw that with Jehoshaphat, that God didn't want the southern kingdom allying with the apostate northern kingdom. But that's what was happening. Now, one of the things that we see here, the reason why I call it a narrative and literary, uh, literary material, is because we, I, we see irony in it. We see dramatic irony, which is the idea that we know something that the people involved don't know. Now the author knows it because he's writing that. And that's what's so intriguing. They don't know what's going to happen, but we do. And then we're also going to see situational irony, and that's when the situation itself brings about irony. Now what is irony? Irony is none other than the sovereignty of the Lord throwing a 95 mile an hour fastball at a million birds. That is the sovereignty of God. Well, let's look, first of all, we'll begin in verse 14 with Jehu strikes the house of Ahab. So let's look at that first. So this is found in the middle of the chapter, 2 Kings, chapter 9. Verse 14. So, what I described for you in the beginning, that was verses 1 through 13, with Jehu becoming king, with him asked to strike against the house of Ahab, and then with, uh, we see Joram, Ahaziah, and even Jezebel in Jezreel, and that's where Jehu is going. So, he's definitely going to kill three birds with one stone. Alright, so let's pick it up then. And it begins, 14, it says, So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, so that is not the Jehoshaphat that was the king, the different Jehoshaphat, but nevertheless Jehu, he conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. Now why is Jehu doing this? Well, if you remember, he was anointed by a servant of Elisha, and his task from the Lord was to strike the house of Ahab. God is going to use this king in the northern kingdom, Jehu, to get rid of the household of Ahab, removing them from the line and removing many of their descendants staying in the lineage. Well, we it all takes place about Ramoth Gilead. Well, what happened when we read earlier, and there's a recap here, but what we read earlier in 2 Kings, in fact, let's go there. Let's go back to chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. So this is what I meant by it's it's a narrative, but there's an interlude in it. And now we're back to the first part. So chapter 8 ended in verses 28 and 29 with Joram getting injured. Verse 28, 2 Kings 8, then he went with Joram 
That's Ahaziah. The son of Ahab, the war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth Gilead. And the Arameans wounded Joram. So the king of the northern kingdom was injured. It wasn't fatal because verse 29 says, So King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramoth when he fought against Hazael, king of Aram. And then watch this. Here's where, this is what we call situational irony. We know Jehu is going to go to Jezreel to get Joram. He's already there because he's injured. And then it says, Then Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now he's coming all of a sudden, but Jehu is on his way. Also going to find out next week when we come back that guess who else is in Jezebel? Jezebel. And there is going to be a falling out between Jehu and Jezebel. She's going to fall out of the window. All right. So as we pick this up then, and we see that in verse 14. Uh, this has already been set up. This is already in the works by the Lord. And we see Jehu, who has, is conspiring. So he was commanded to go, and he's conspiring. This isn't so much of the fact of you know, evil conspiring. This is more of strategic conspiring. Let's sit and conspire to figure out how we're going to do this. And he finds out that... Joram goes to Jezreel. Look at verse 15. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Abraham. So Jehu said, If this is your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it in Jezreel. So the first thing that we want to say is that when he finds out that he's going to Jezreel, one, one of the things he's going to do, now it says here, if this is your mind, now it could either be that he's talking to the Lord, saying, Lord, if this is your will, or he's just saying this about the mind of Joram, because he's conspiring against him. He says, if this is your mind, if this is what you're going to do, then let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it in Jezreel. They're fighting against Ramah Gilead. He doesn't want anybody hearing about this from Ramah Gilead going to tell Joram in Jezreel. So the majority of the army is sealing them in Ramah Gilead. Jehu is going to take a small company, uh, and that is how he's going to to Joram, but it's going to be secret, it's going to be quick, speedy, and a blitzkrieg, and that's what we're going to see. Now look at 16, if you would. It said, Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. So we know what's going to happen, but Joram doesn't he has no idea that this is the Lord orchestrating that. But we know it is. So here's this company of special ops soldiers with Joram, while the rest of the army is keeping everybody at bay from going and telling anyone uh, to Joram and Jezreel. So it's a secret ops, and he's riding his chariot, or their chariots are coming. And then all of a sudden, the author adds, oh, and by the way, Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come, come down to see Joram. And normally that wouldn't have had to have been in there. But that is part of what's going to happen. This is the situational irony that we know why it's happening, but they didn't know why it's happening. This is God throwing that 90 mile an hour fastball and hitting more than one bird. 
We see here also, too, that uh, Ahaziah, because he had allied with Joram, which he wasn't supposed to, he's going to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's from his point of view. But he's going to be at the right place at the right time because God's going to punish him for him following in the way of Ahab, even though Ahaziah was in the southern kingdom. But he is going to be judged as well. So we come to verse 17. In verse 17, we see that there's a watchman. And everyone has every fortified city back then it had a watchman who was standing guard. And all of a sudden he sees this, this company of soldiers coming towards him. Now they, he didn't know exactly who he was at this point. It says in verse 17, Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send him to meet them, and let him say, It is peace. So the first thing is, is that this watchman spots this company coming, and he tells the king. So, again, uh, you know, Joram isn't dead. Uh, not even fatally wounded. I mean, he can still run his horse as a king. And so when he's told that there's this company coming, he says, get a horseman. And have a horseman go out. And basically what he's saying is the Hebrew uh, greeting is uh, shalom. But it, it started as, do you come in peace? Do you come in shalom? And the answer, hopefully, by the person coming is, Yes, I come in shalom. I come in peace. But that's not how it's going to work out. So the horseman is sent out, and he wants him to say, is this in peace? Of course, he wants the person to say, yes, it is. Well, look at what happens. In verse 18, it says, So a horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? Do you come in peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. So at this point, he was rejecting peace, but he, he was basically talking to an inferior, not a superior. He said, what is that to you? What do you have to do with peace? What, you know, you're not the king. Um, so get behind me and join my ranks. So I could have killed him at that point. But as long as he was willing to get in line and not return and warn Joram, he was fine with that. And so he tells him to get behind. And then the watchman is still watching. And it says he reported the messenger came to them, but he did not return. So he told Joram, he said, yeah, the horseman went out. The messenger went out. He went to them, and the strangest thing, he never returned, and he went to the back of their regime. He, so to speak, joined their regime. Well, you know, J.U. decided, well, let's send a second horseman. Maybe something happened to the first man's horse. So in verse 19, it says, then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, same message, thus says the king, is it peace? Shalom? Are you coming in Shalom? Instead of Jehu saying, yes, I come in Shalom, Jehu again answered and said, what have you to do with peace? What, how does this concern you? Why are you worried about this? And what are you contributing about this? And what, what are you going to do? And so he says, turn behind him. So he does not return, but he is sent back to the ranks. Well, in verse 20, the watchman is still watching him, and he has to report this. And he says, he came even to them, and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. All right, so let's just do this first part. So he tells him again, he said, the second guy didn't come back. I don't know what's going on. But I will tell you this. 
I observed this army getting closer, and they are going unbelievably fast. And it reminds me of Jehu. Now let me just stop there for a moment and say this, that this, this isn't saying that Jehu is a bad driver. The NIV actually uses the word a madman, and that is actually closer to the Hebrew than furiously. But I think this is one of the cases where furiously probably fits the interpretation a little better. It didn't mean that you know, he's driving like a drunk and he's all over the place and he's flipping the chariot over and having to get back. It didn't mean that. What it means is, J.U. is a military man. And he's a military man of the early blitzkrieg. And so it seems as if any time he went out in war against anyone, he used the blitzkrieg. Now, of course, it was only with chariots. It wasn't with tanks or soldiers of large army of soldiers, or even an air attack, which can all be part of the German blitzkrieg and those things, but nevertheless, that's what it was. He wanted to get the enemy unawares, not ready, and he wanted to overwhelm them with his speed and force. And so here he comes, and I do think it's probably better when it says he drives furiously. Not that he's crazy, but that he drives, he's a man on a mission. And, you know, maybe to those who aren't accustomed to just driving in a chariot. <laughs> so I imagine, you know, if you would be there at that time, us older folks would probably go a little slower. Um, we would make sure we would look to the left or to the right. No other chariot was coming. But the point I'm trying to make is, you know, this was a soldier, and they were efficient in their horsemanship and in their chariots and they could go and they did and that's what this was about so he drove furiously with a man on a mission and of course the mission was Joram which all of a sudden we come to verse 21 and we get more situational irony in that Joram has no idea what's happening but he's going to go out and he's going to meet Verse 21 says, Then Joram said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready. Now we'll stop there. So it could be said that he's saying to the army, Get ready. Except that I don't think he knew of anything else. Uh, because it says, And they made his chariot ready. So it seems that's what he's saying. Um, he doesn't go out there with an army. Uh, we don't think that the army was certainly ready. So he's just saying, you know, make my chariot ready. Uh, I'm going to go out to meet him. And besides, he is familiar with Jehu as one of his commanders, who had been one who followed his commands. And he's going to go out. He's thinking, what in the world's going on? That you're coming so fast. He probably was thinking that there was something going on in Ramoth Gilead that perhaps it was going very bad. And so someone had to come to him. No, I, I don't know. I don't know what was going through his mind. Scripture doesn't say. But he is now going to get his chariot, and he is going to go out to the guy who's coming to strike him dead. Now, God has orchestrated all that. You know, that's that. You know, when, when we see Randy Johnson throwing that fastball and the bird hitting at the same time, God is bringing the bird to Randy Johnson. God is bringing Joram to the man who was going to kill him. Well, let's finish out the verse, because notice this. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. Now there's two birds coming. Ahaziah should have been minding his own business and never allied with the northern kingdom. But because he did, he is brought in association with the judgment and judgment on him in full right. So he's going. Now there's one other thing that's happening here in this situational irony. Situational irony is not only when we know something uh, that the people involved don't know, so the author 
told us this. But now the situation is becoming very ironic. Look at what it says. And they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth the Jezreel. I don't know if you remember, but back in chapter 8, Ahab took the property from Naboth. It was because of Jezebel who told him how to retrieve all this. And the idea was Jehu was going to kill Joram in that very spot. That was the same spot that Ahab was killed. In fact, we're going to see that it's a fulfillment of what Elijah said. I'm not talking about Elisha, even though we're in the ministry of Elisha. This was way back in the words of what Elijah said. And so, all of a sudden, the situation is going, oh my word, this is orchestrated by the Lord. Now, Joram comes there, and, and, and by his words, he really doesn't know that the gig is up. He really doesn't know what's about to happen. Because look at verse 22. It says, when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace? Jehu? In other words, he's asking the same thing. Are you coming in peace? What, what, what are you coming? That's the problem. It, are, are you coming in shalom? And hopefully, Jehu was supposed to say, yeah, I'm coming in shalom. I'm coming in peace. But look what he answered. He said, what peace? So long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. Wow. So he had been sent to strike the house of Ahab. One of the reasons was given was for the blood of the prophets that was spilt by the hand of Jezebel. That's one of the reasons why God is bringing vengeance on them. Plus the fact of their idolatry and their evil. And that's intimated, and it says when he says, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft. So I just wanted to stop there for a moment. And when you're thinking of harlotries in the Bible, uh, it's usually in the spiritual harlotry, spiritual adultery, it's usually in the form of idolatry. Instead of serving God, they're serving another. They're, they're forsaking God. And then the witchcraft, we would take as, you know, their idolatry of Baal has led them even deeper into evil, even into witchcraft. And so and the idea is, is that they are probably trying to uh, somehow speak to these demons and get information from the demons. I mean, that's really the way that we, we would think about this with witchcraft. And, and let me just read something. One writes, harlotries common biblical metaphor for idolatry and witchcraft, seeking information from demonic forces, describe the nature of Jezebel's influence, and idolatry has lured Israel into demonic practices. So we're learning something here that we probably haven't seen in detail. So it's bad enough that they're worshiping the golden calf in the northern kingdom. It's bad enough that they're worshipping Baal, but now they've been brought into witchcraft and, and uh, seeking the advice of demonic forces uh, and those types of things. And Jehu says what Ahaziah should have said, there will never be peace as long as Jezebel is alive because of her terrible influence to both Ahab and the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. There will never be peace until she's gone. By the way, this is setting this up because we're going to find out after we discuss this section tonight, the next section we're going to pick up is when he meets Jezebel in Jezreel. So, all of a sudden this is coming. But again, he's talking to Joram, and again, Joram was the son of Ahab. 
and Joram was the son of Jezebel. And we see their treachery with their evil influencing them. And again, we're going to say it again. How, how often do we see it in the Bible that really uh, the influence of parents is very, very strong? And I believe in this day and age we have to double down on it. This is something we have to double down on because of the harsh times that we are in, the evil times that we are in. And we have so many examples of this uh, from the book of Kings because one king was evil and then the next king was evil and very seldom did one king break out of that and become a good king. Far and few between. Well, certainly not from the northern kingdom. Certainly not from the house of Ahab. And now God is going to use Jehu to strike down the house of Ahab. There will be no peace because of the influence of Jezebel. And, and that is interesting, because all along we're wondering, well, how, you know, what was it about Ahab? Was Ahab himself evil? The answer is yes. But was Ahab influenced by Jezebel to become even more evil? Yes. And so we see the scriptures telling us that it's not just the father that has the influence, even though he's supposed to be head of the home or the king here in this context, but also the wives have influence both on their husbands and on their children. So again, when we think about an application for us, we need to be godly parents, godly fathers, godly mothers, following the word of the Lord and instructing, instructing, instructing our children in the way of the Lord. Well, at this point, the gig is up, and, and Joram knows exactly what's going to happen. And so look at verse 23. Verse 23, he is going to flee. It says, so Joram reigned about, he took the reins of his horse and you know, sped around and fled, took off, and said to Ahaziah as he's driving by, there is treachery, O Ahaziah. Let me translate that. Get out of here. Run for your life. So here's Joram, and of course he's trying to make it back to Jezreel. But let me just ask you, what kind of chance do you think he has when Jehu, the madman chariot racer, is after him? <laughs> Plus the fact that the Lord is involved. So now we come to verse 24. It says, and Jehu drew his bow with full strength. Let me stop there. What does that mean with full strength? Well, what it means is that they didn't have you know, these new angled technological bows that they have now with their cams and shafts like that. But the farther you pulled it back, the more power came out of it. So if you pulled a full draw, as full as you can put it with all your strength, it will come out with extreme velocity. And that's what he does, and he's a soldier. He's a commander. He would be very efficient with this. He pulled with full strength, and he shot Joram between his arms, meaning right on the target, right in the middle of his back. He's, he's going away. Now, the very fact that he shot between his arms suggests that Joram didn't have his armor on. Here's a good example for Ephesians of not having your armor on. But he didn't have his armor on because it was Jehu, his commander, and he didn't feel threatened in any way. That's why I don't think when he said, uh, get ready, it wasn't to his army. It was, hey, get my chair ready. I'm going to go out to see my old pal Jehu. Well, he hits the target, and it says, and the arrow went. And he sank in his chariot. And you might imagine that. When it is a heart shot, uh, you're, you're done. It's like the lights are out. It's like the power button is turned off. And he just sank. It didn't mean he, it wasn't as if he, he kind of, you know, was holding on to it. It just meant that he dropped. He sank. He sank in, uh, in, in the chariot. So he died. Now, we still have Ahaziah out there, so we're about to talk about him a 
in just a moment, but we're not done. So Jehu is following the Lord's command, and he's doing the work of the Lord here, and he's doing it quite well. And then we come to verse 25, and it says, Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, Take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember that you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. And so he remembered the words of Elijah, and he's now reminiscing with Bidkar of this prophecy. And the prophecy is found in 1 Kings 21, 17 through 19. So let's turn there. 1 Kings 21, verse 17. Now, again, what had happened was Naboth had a vineyard right there in Samaria. And this was, this was a vineyard that would have been quite helpful for the king because he wouldn't have to go out to get produce and things like that. He would have his own vineyard right there. But Naboth says that he was instructed of the Lord not to give away his father's inheritance. So he said no. But well, you remember what happened? Ahab went home and howled. He laid on his bed and just looked into the side and you know, I don't want to eat. I don't feel good. And finally, Jezebel said, what's wrong with you? And he told her, and she said, you're the king of Israel. Why are you acting like this? And then she said, in contradiction of what she just said, don't worry, I'll get you the field. No, wait, I thought he was the king. So what she did was she hired some individuals to have a feast and invite Naboth and when Naboth was there, they were going to accuse him of apostasy toward the Lord and rebellion toward the king, both of which were lies. But it worked, and he was stoned, and Ahab got that field. Well, as we go on, look at what the Lord says to Elijah again, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Again, don't you see that phrase, the word of the Lord came to? This means God's prophetic word. This means revelation. This is not what's happening today when people think that they received a word from the Lord. This is absolute truth. This is not only absolute truth from the Lord, but it's not given to anyone else except the ones that he has chosen. Now, time after time, when we see a prophet, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And the word of the Lord came to Elisha. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. God is separating those men from all others. So that you can't stand up and say, well, I have a prophecy. The Lord gave me a prophecy. Number one, you are now claiming to be on the level of an Old Testament prophet. Number two, if you are wrong in the one iota, you are to be stoned. And yet, we don't see any of that today. Uh, we do live in the age of grace, but... Still, all people will proclaim that they are prophets and they will be less than 100%. They will even admit that if they can get 85% correct, that they're doing pretty good. That is so absurd. How can the Lord be 85% correct in prophecy? And when the Lord gave a prophecy to Elijah, it was given to Elijah. No misunderstanding about it. The prophecy was given, and guess what? We're watching it be fulfilled even now. So here's what the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite. He said, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of. <coughs> you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered? And also taken possession, and of course he did. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Now, I have the term of a 
engineering and lactobacillus canine processes. And we've seen it several times now. It's going to be said also about Jezebel, and it's going to be fulfilled with Jezebel. Now it's being fulfilled here in 1 Kings, 1 Kings, in the context of Ahab, and that's exactly what happened. Now, here's Joram, the son of Ahab, and he is killed in Jezreel, which is very close to the Jezreelite, Naboth's property, and he says, cast his body in that field. It's a further fulfillment of that prophecy. Notice what is also said. In fact, he's going to quote what he said. But before I do that, let me just say, Jehu is going to quote this, and it's going to reveal God's will and the fulfillment of the prophecy. So going back to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 9, here's Jehu quoting what he remembers from Elijah. It says, Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth, and this is the Lord speaking, and the blood of his sons, says the Lord. I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. Now that was in reference to Ahab, but Jehu is told to strike the household of Ahab, which includes Joram. And there's something else here that I want to point out. So, so far, we've only known that this prophecy was just um, in response to Naboth being put to death. But we see here where it wasn't just Naboth put to death, they also put his sons to death as well. One writes this, Jehu's free quotation added a fact not revealed previously. Jezebel had also had Naboth's sons killed. Jehu was careful to obey and to fill, fulfill the Lord's word, thus ending Israel's fourth royal dynasty, that is the house of Ahab. And so Jehu, we see the way Jehu was starting out. He's starting out in obedience to the Lord and accepting uh, the, the anointing to be king, even though Jordan was the king. He, he was anointed by the Lord through Elisha. Jehu was. So he became king. He also took on the responsibility of striking and destroying the house of Ahab. And of course, he is uh, remembering that and he's seeing the fulfillment in it in putting the body of Joram in that field. Well, at this point, we can just say, well, all's well that ends well, except that we're not done. Don't you remember, Ahaziah is involved in this. Should have been. Should have stayed down in the southern kingdom. Should have never allied with Joram. Should have never followed the ways of Ahab, because he's going to get it too. So now we find Jehu strikes Ahaziah. Look at verse 27. It says, When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, when he heard Joram yell, Treachery! He fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is at Ablium, or Iblium. But he fled to Megiddo and died there. Now, sometimes we have uh, what looks like a contradiction <clears throat> in Second Chronicles and First Kings. But what we have is another situation: is those two are filling in details that aren't otherwise known. So, in other words, someone could come up to you and say, "Well, I, I know one time that this was in the Bible. I think they will. They don't study the Bible." But I know about a contradiction that 1 Kings said he died one place, and then 2 Chronicles said he died in a different way, and you really can't put them together. But actually, you can. You can. So I'd like you to now turn to, keep your finger here, 
and then turn to Second Chronicles chapter 22. Second Chronicles chapter 22. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, we're going to find out another piece of information that 1 Kings didn't tell us. Um, and that's sometimes how these two books complement each other, and they help each other out in details. Well, in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 8, this is what it says. And it came about when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah and slew them. So we don't see that in first Kings. So now here you go. Look at number one. Look at the consequence, not only upon Ahaziah or his disobedience to the Lord, but also those involved with him. And, and so that's the one thing that about sin that we say there's consequence for sin, and there is, sometimes that consequence is not only on us, but it's on others who know us, or those who are involved in us. Now, it could be that these princes are in cahoots, or evil too, maybe worshippers of Baal, maybe this is one of the reasons why they're getting it, but we also see at times, uh, like the families of someone who sinned, and brings about the Lord's with 
something that I'm sure you can understand. Or you're thinking about hunting. And so, so you tell the story about how you were able to take a fine shot and shoot this deer and harvest him and he's a trophy deer. And of course, you, you now come home and you tell several people. Well, one of the guys that you're telling is, is a great hunter. And he's going to go tell the story and he's going to tell all those parts about how big the deer was how we snuck up on him. But then one of the other guys that he told him was a guy who's also a hunter, but he's more into guns and firing and shooting. And so now he's going to talk about, yeah, you should have, yeah, I heard about the terrific shot that he made, you know. It was, uh, you know, a thousand yards, the deer was running at full blow. And he took, he took a full draw, oh no, wait, that's an arrow. He took a full aim with his rifle and shot that deer. That's what I'm using the the idea is, well, which is true? Well, they're both true. It's just which one's being emphasized. And it's the Lord who leads the inspired writer to emphasize what he believes that the readers need to have. Okay, so how do we harmonize this? Um, the Bible Laws Commentary says these two accounts of Ahaziah's faith seem contradictory, but they can be harmonized. All right, so let's first think about 2 Kings 9.27. So what happened was, evidently Ahaziah fled from Jezreel. We get that. South, by the way of beth Hagon, which is also called the house of the garden. So it says that. We know that he went that way. Then Jehu and his men pursued him and that's when Jehu said, shoot him. And they did, but obviously they wounded him. Both accounts say that he didn't die instantly. Both accounts say that he was wounded and escaped. Now where did he go? Well, first of all, let me just say, it says at the extent, ascent of Gur, near the place of Ibleum, that's where he was shot. Now, it doesn't say that in... Second Chronicles 22. All right, well, let's move to Second Chronicles 22, where it says simply that they caught him while he was hiding in Samaria. They brought him to Jehu, and he put him to death and buried him. Well, apparently Ahaziah reached Samaria, but he escaped, and he hid there for some time. Jehu's men saw him, found him, and brought him to Jehu, Probably in Jezreel. Now what happened there? Well, maybe he had Ahaziah shot again and wounded again. Either that or he is going to still die eventually from his first wound. But the idea is, is that what happens? He escapes again, and I don't know how. I mean, he must be a pretty slippery guy. You know, how, how you know, he must have been one of those guys that could have from, you know, Alcatraz, or one of those. And there was a guy who escaped from Alcatraz, like, at least according to the Hollywood version. So, the idea would be that, okay, he, he, he escaped and he was found at Samaria. And either he was shot again and wounded, or he escaped again. Well, then where did he go? Well, back to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 27. Then Ahaziah escaped fled west to Megiddo, where he died. And that would all fit together. Let me give another example. We often read the Gospels account of the sign that was put above Jesus on the cross. Now, if you look at the different Gospel accounts, you will see some differences in the wording. When you say, well, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. What if all of those words were on there? But Matthew, writing to the Jews, showing that Jesus was the king of the Jews, pointed out Jesus the king of the Jews. That's the thing that he would have pointed out. And he may not have put in the rest. And, and he, all of the other uh, gospel writers would have put in another part of the sign. You say, well, that just sounds like a contradiction. No, now we can put them all together. So I think that's exactly what we have here. We don't have a contradiction. There are no such things as 
contradictions in the Bible, how can it be when God is perfect and God uh, inspired the writers to write these things down in absolute certainty? But I wanted to bring that out because that's one of the conundrums that we find in the book of Kings, both in 1st and 2nd Kings. But what we do know is that Ahaziah died. And he died because he was, from God's point of view, in the right place at the right time. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And now there was judgment on Ahaziah and some of the princes and the sons of his brothers. Well, let's go back to 2 Kings now. We'll finish out 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 28. It says, Then his servant Ahaziah carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem. He was the king of and buried him in his grave with his fathers in the city of David. And we get the idea, even of what's going on, that this was allowed to happen. Uh, he was in royalty. Um, and even, even when I'm not going to give out too much, I'm not going to let the dogs out of the bag, I mean, the cats out of the bag with Jezebel. But the truth is that even. Jehu, who was going to allow her to be buried because she was in the royal line. Not that that did anything to remove the evil, but we see the respect in Jehu. So you get the idea that that's what he allowed to happen. And of course, they buried him in his grave and with his fathers in the city. So he was allowed that place among the kings because he was one of the kings of the southern kingdom. Now, look at verse 29, and we're going to stop here. It says, Now in the eleventh year of Joram, that's the northern king, the son of Ahab, of course, northern, Ahaziah became king over Judah. So this is the way the writers are ending this with the summary of when this began. Now, we do have one little discrepancy, and again, I don't think it's, I think it can be answered. It's not a contradiction. So it may be a little discrepancy, but we can certainly plan it out. This is verse 29. It says, Joram was in his 11th year. Now let's go to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 25. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 25 says this. In the 12th year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. How can, even in the same book, 2 Kings, there be such a mistake like that? Was it the 11th or was it the 12th? Well, I'm going to say both. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, there were two ways of assessing how long a king reigned. The number one way, the first way, was if, if the king became a king, let's say, partially in one year, like maybe even the last day of the year, and then went into a full year, they would count that one day or that partial time as a year. So that's not too hard to understand. That's called the non-accession year. Now, there was also another way of counting it, and that would be if there was a partial year, you didn't count that. You counted the first full year, and you included that partial with the other, and that would be one. That is the way that it was obviously written in this last one, and so that's why the number 11 is there, because it was included. And this isn't just here. We, we see that throughout, uh, throughout not only Kings but the Old Testament. This is a very common thing that they did, and it's a historical thing. It's not something just made up to get out of there. But um, this is exactly what is the explanation of that. Now, again, just as we conclude, just several things. Again, we look at the influence of. Parents. 
and how much we have to take that into consideration and be serious. Children don't raise themselves. So let me take that back. If no one raises them, they will raise themselves. And that's the, the book of Proverbs talks about how terrible that is and how problematic that is. And so it's up to the parents to do that. You know, I think I remember, uh, you know, early in my parenthood, uh, there was a lot of epiphanies. The, the first epiphany was, wow, I didn't know it was this much work. All right, you know, you realize that, but it is. I mean, you have to train. They don't come out already processed. You're the one who processes them. You've got to teach them. And, and another thing is, it, it speaks for patience. You know, if they were 35, still living there, and you had to tell them how to do things, maybe then you begin to question. But when they're very young, they, they don't know better. Oh, I didn't know you're supposed to do it that way. I'm only eight years old. I, I didn't get to that part of my manual yet. So the idea is that it is a lot of work, and parents do have to take a lot of time. And that's just general. And then take it up to a level spiritually. Perhaps the most important spiritually. Fear the Lord and come to know the Lord. You want them to come to know the Lord as early an age as they can. You want to teach them to live for the Lord. Um, your attitudes on to them, your service to the Lord will be passed on to them. You know, you hear it both ways. When you see families involved in service of the Lord and the children are involved in service of the Lord when they grow up, their church attendance, they've always gone to church. They've always got involved. This is what they're going to do. Train them up in the right way. Um, so, when we, we think of Jezebel's Ahab. And it's not just on their children, but you know, notice how it even includes the southern kingdom. It influenced all of Israel because of their sin. And so this is why we have to live for the Lord. This is why we have to know the Lord. And this is why we have to double down in the raising of our children. The other thing that I want to talk about is let's just talk about the Lord's judgment here. So we talked before about why does the Lord sometimes wait for judgment? Well, because sometimes he waits for his judgment. And that should be good enough. But he does explain. Uh, we went to the book of Revelation and we saw the souls of those who had been martyred under the altar. And they were crying out before the Lord, How long, O oh Lord, before you take vengeance on our blood? And he gives them the instruction to rest, because they're now in their eternal rest. Number two, God has it all under control. And number three, he's waiting for a full number of those martyrs to come in. And so, in a sense, God was patiently waiting and long-suffering for even this sin to develop. So he was going to, he was going to influence the whole house of Ahab, so he had to wait for the whole house of Ahab had done all of the evil that they were going to do and incur all of the wrath and he was going to take Jehu at that time to take care of the line of Ahab. And by the way, he, he didn't really linger. I mean, he did. He did take care of Ahab. And you can say, well, what about Jezebel? Well, it's coming. It's coming. We're going to talk about that. And now, Jehoram. And then finally, the other thing that we think about is when you are in alignment and cahoot, and you are an ally of people that you shouldn't be allies with. Um, you hear all the time of situations of maybe someone, perhaps naive, maybe, but in with the wrong people. Wrong people got caught because they were there, they were part of it. And they, you hear them tell the police, well, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. And they say, well, I'm really sorry did have something to do with it because you were with them. And so we see, see the idea that Ahaziah should have never been in alignment with them, especially when what? Well, they're not worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping the golden calf that Jeroboam set up and caused the entire nation, first the northern kingdom, to begin in this horrible, horrible idolatry and the worship of Baal and others. And so we really do need to be careful of our alignment. Um, and again, I'm not saying that we can't be friends with them and look 
for opportunities to share Christ, but we all know that there's a line there when, you know, well, yeah, I can, you can be my acquaintance, and I can befriend you, and I can try to help you out and lead you to the Lord, but as far as best friends, they're in my church. That's where my best friends are. They're in my church. You want to come to church? Be part of my best friends? You can. You come to Christ. But as far as us going out there and befriending them and doing the things that they do in order to win them, that's not the way to do it. All right. With that, we'll pick it up next week. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, the lessons that we are taught by And Father, we just ask you that we would listen to the admonishment that's there about parental guidance, the importance of church, the importance of fellowship with the right people, Lord, and not outline with the wrong people. Although we do not want to be in a push that we want to win them to Christ, and there are many unsafe people that we do know and rub shoulders with, and we do pray for their salvation. Lord, let us be godly. Let us walk with you. Let us understand what your word says. Help us put on the armor of God and never be caught without it like Jordan. And Father, we'll just thank you for these lessons in Jesus.